so let's talk about what happened this morning, uh, Saturday morning, uh, under the cover of immense rocket fire uh, by Palestinian armed groups, Palestinian terrorist groups in Gaza, paragliders uh, infiltrated uh, uh, communities in southern Israel, uh, including uh, inf infiltrations to the security fence uh, by land and by sea. Now, these groups were led by Hamas. Uh, other groups I've identified uh, that took part in the uh, the assault uh, against southern Israel. Uh, there are quite a few, including the Islamic Jihad, uh, but in total I've identified approximately 12 armed groups that participated in the fighting, that have participated in the fighting. And there are more armed groups out there uh, in Gaza that are likely to join, uh, but that's uh, the number that I have for right now. Uh, most of them uh, have published statements saying that they've uh, joined the, uh, that they've infiltrated Israel. Some of them uh, have said that they have uh, captured IDF soldiers and, and uh, Israeli civilians. I'll also like to add that of these 12 groups, only some of them, like Islamic Jihad, Hamas, and a few others are sanctioned as terrorist organizations by the United States. There's a great deal that are not. And that I find that quite troubling. Adding to that is that many of these groups are also backed by Iran. Islamic Jihad is actually a proxy of Iran. So it's, uh, it's, it's very important to note that, that all these groups have one thing in common and that's Iran. Uh, so adding to that, I'd just like to say as well, there have been new uh, rockets, new armaments that have been, you can say unveiled uh, by these groups, by Islamic Jihad, by Hamas, which includes drones, rockets, and uh, anti-tank missiles. Uh, so th I think that's very important. And a lot of this know-how to create or to produce this, this armament comes from Hezbollah and comes from Iran. Uh, so I think that's important to note. Uh, but right now, uh, Hamas, I'd just like to add one more thing. Uh, this battle isn't only on the ground, it's not only kinetic, but it's uh, in the media, on social networks. Hamas is going to great efforts to publish photos and pictures of dead civilians, dead Israeli civilians, dead soldiers. Uh, this is something that on this level I have not seen before, especially those that have been taken into Gaza and abducted. Uh, this 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 is a, a war of the minds basically as well. It's a psychological warfare by Hamas. So I think that's important to know, uh, but that's it for me. Got it. Thanks. Over to you, um, Brad, for your military assessment, what's going on, how the U.S. can be helpful. Great. Uh, thanks, Beth. Thanks to everyone for joining. I'll be very brief. Uh, Joe's really following the uh, details on the ground there closely. I'm focused more on, on uh, how the Department of Defense uh, can help. Uh, you know, I'm sure all of you have seen President Biden's statement today where he said, quote, we were ready to offer all appropriate means of support to the government and people of Israel. I'm sure you also saw Secretary of Defense Austin's statement where he underscored that. And he said, quote, over the coming days, the Department of Defense will work to ensure that Israel has what it needs to defend itself, unquote. In my view, that's exactly the right thing to be saying uh, right now. Um, but I think it's important uh, to back up those important words with urgent and tangible action. Uh, I think it's, uh, you know, no one knows for sure what the future looks like here, but I think it's uh, a prudent 
assumption that this war could last a while <clears throat> uh, for a variety of reasons, uh, and that uh, Israel will need to expend large quantities of munitions to defend itself and to defeat what I think can accurately be called a, a premeditated surprise terrorist attack on Israeli civilians, including men, women, and children. So, um, you know, in, in the past, we've seen the U.S. kind of belatedly come along and 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 seeks a supplemental appropriations. I think it, uh, the administration and Congress would be wise to not wait for munition supplies to run low uh, and to take action to ensure that Israel has what it needs to defend itself. Um, so I really do think this is a time for proactive American action to support our ally, which is in confronting you know kind of a historic assault from terrorists who don't recognize Israel's right to exist. Uh, most likely, what the IDF will need most in the short term, of course, will be precision-guided munitions and more interceptors for Israel's Iron Dome system. Uh, those are the most likely urgent needs. If the war expands, which it probably will, especially if it includes a large ground warfare element, the IDF will need other things as well. Um, and, and we could talk about what those might be. Um, you know, I, I think also there's some debate, early debate about whether this is an intelligence failure. I'll leave that discussion to others, but I'd say that the U.S. can and should provide all intelligence support to Israel um, and uh, should consider perhaps bolstering its U.S. military posture in the region uh, to deter further additional aggression. We know that the U.S. has kind of bulked up recently uh, as a, in response to Iran's maritime aggression, and that's shown some good uh, positive results, as uh, we've documented in something we released this week, uh, both in our flash brief and our maritime tracker, just flagging that for folks that haven't seen it. But additional forces may be prudent at this moment um, to deter additional aggression. And just concluding with this, um, you know, this is not our first time that we've seen unprovoked terrorist aggression trying to murder civilians in Israel. Sadly, we've seen this movie before. Um, uh, I think um, uh, we're going to hear false suggestions of moral equivalence between a terrorist organization deliberately trying to kill civilians and using its own people as human shields versus a government trying to defend its civilians against an unprovoked terrorist attack and taking significant steps to avoid civilian casualties. When we hear those suggestions of false moral equivalence, I think we should call them what they are. Uh, and then I'll, and then finally, um, you know, I think uh, if this conflict wears on, you're going to hear calls in the United States and Western Europe for Israel to stop defending itself. Uh, and I would respond to that uh, by saying the following, unless we want more such attacks in the future, we need to provide Israel the time, space and means necessary to make clear to all terrorists involved or watching, including the terrorist patron in Tehran, that such aggression is unwise and too costly to contemplate in the future. So I'll stop there. Thanks. Thanks, Brad. A, a reminder that participants are welcome to submit questions via chat at any time or raise their hand uh, virtually to be recognized after these initial comments. I'd like to send it over to Mark to about the Iran side of this and, and what is their role and what Hamas carried out today and maybe some of the impact, a possible impact on the expansion of Abraham Accords. Yeah, thanks a lot, Beth, and uh, thanks, Joe and Brad. Uh, I'm going to touch on Iran, um, Saudi Arabia, and Washington. I, I think on the Iran side, you know, the Israelis are causing, calling this operation Swords of Iron. I think it can be more rightly termed Swords of Iran, because I think it, it really plays into a strategy that Ayatollah Ali Khamenei has had for many years, uh, which he called uh, the Ring of Fire. It's really to surround Israel on every border with uh 
with fighters and and weaponry, uh, including missiles, to to attack Israel. And he he's been uh, making very clear on Twitter publicly in many statements uh, in Farsi that he sees Israel right now as politically weak, uh, politically divided. And this was the moment to really um, dig in the dig in the knife. Um, so it should be no surprise that that a operation like this was launched by uh, Iran-backed Hamas. I think the uh, we can talk maybe in the Q&A about wh why the Israelis were unprepared or this unprepared, but I, it's clear that this has been a deliberate Iranian strategy uh, for some time, and you're just seeing a, another manifestation of it, but really at a, at a level that I think was surprising for, for many observers. The second issue, um, overwhelming bipartisan support in Congress, including from critics of Israel, you've, you've seen recently um, people who, you know, Chris Murphy, Elizabeth Warren, and others who have been critical of Israel coming out in strong support of Israel. I think the Biden administration, again, also uh, President Biden, Secretary Austin, very strong support. Uh, Secretary Blinken spoke to uh, President Herzog just recently. So overwhelming bipartisan support. I think overwhelming horror in Washington uh, at the scale and scope of the brutality that we've seen in, on social media. Um, the videos of of women and children being butchered and and captured and taken back to Gaza. I think it's created not only um, horror in Washington, but you've seen dozens of countries around the world, including skeptics and critics of Israel uh, in the past, who who are rallying in support of Israel. I think that has you know sort of significant, perhaps political uh, ramifications for Israel as it seeks the legitimacy. Uh, the IDF needs the legitimacy and the the time in order to. Um, continue its operations, which may include uh, moving IDF troops into Gaza, it may include the reoccupation of Gaza in order to root out these Hamas terrorist networks, uh, the way that you know we rooted out Al-Qaeda networks around the world. And I think you may see a, a similar um, sequence of events play out. I want to talk about one interesting outlier in terms of support for Israel, and that's Saudi Arabia, which I think you know many of you have been really focused on uh, Saudi-US-Israel talks. Um, which seem to have been going uh, very well. It may be one of the reasons why Ali Khamenei decided to unleash Hamas at this time to try and derail those normalization talks. Um, I think the Saudis uh, have run a very predictable playbook, which is sort of public condemnation of Israel, but privately trying to reach out to the Israelis, to the Americans and others uh, to try and be more proactive and positive. I think it's going to fail. I don't think the Iranian strategy will work here to derail normalization. I think normalization from a Saudi perspective is so strategic to MBS economically, uh, politically, militarily, from a national security perspective that he he needs normalization and will continue to move forward. And I think this will you know, um, reaffirm for MBS and for the Saudis that you know the same uh, Iran-backed terrorists that have been targeting their civilians are, are targeting Israeli civilians. But I would add the Saudis had better be careful because they are playing with fire in Washington, where there is a lot of skepticism in Congress um, for a U.S.-Saudi security deal, particularly on the terms that MBS has demanded. And even um, strong supporters like Lindsey Graham uh, of, of the Saudis have come out um, on Twitter condemning the Saudis for the recent statement that they put out on their foreign ministry. And uh, it'd be interesting to see if the Saudis begin to backtrack on that MFA statement and start to find a more um, appropriate line in order to rebuild some of that uh, support in Washington. They're going to need to cash in for a normalization deal. I'll stop there. 
Thanks, Mark. Uh, last, we'll go to John. If you could address what appears to be an intelligence failure on the part of the Israel Defense Forces, what happened? Sure. Uh, thank you, Beth, for organize this, uh, organizing this. And uh, Brad, Mark, and Joe, uh, as always, appreciate working with you. Um, it, look, the, the first thing that I think we need to note here is that Israel has traditionally looked at Hamas as a tactical threat, which is to say that Israel has dominated the battlefield in the Gaza Strip, total intelligence dominance. That appears to have been um, upended today, that that assessment probably no longer holds. Uh, first of all, the intelligence that Israel had on Hamas appears to have been faulty to some extent or another. I personally heard from Israeli officials just last week uh, that uh, Hamas and its current leadership was rethinking its hostile posture toward Israel. Uh, and that uh, they were looking for a modus vivendi with the Israelis uh, because they had invited disastrous wars upon Gaza year after year, and that was not playing well among the Gaza population. Whatever led to that belief or that assessment appears to have been obviously upended today, and I think that there will be there will need to be some sort of commission um, inside Israel looking to exactly how that happened, why that happened. As for the shift from a tactical threat to a strategic one, just look at what happened today that uh, that you know Hamas was able to uh, train and deploy a team that came in by air uh, into Israel. Uh, and Israel apparently had no uh, sense that this was coming. Uh, were able to successfully uh, or uh, fire rockets directly into Israeli population centers um, and potentially overwhelm Iron Dome. We're still trying to get clear information on this, uh, but right now reports are conflict unconflicting uh, to be sure. Um, but the, the fact remains here is that they were able to penetrate is, uh, Israeli territory and bring back with them dozens of hostages. Um, and, and they were actually also able to um, engage successfully in police stations and in military bases in order to uh, to gain some of these hostages and to bring them back. So this is no longer a tactical threat. They have struck deep into the heart of Israel. Uh, and I do believe that there will need to be some kind of an assessment of how um, I think many of us here in the United States, certainly, you know, uh, uh, Israelis as well, had gotten the Hamas picture wrong. I think a lot of it, I think to Mark's um, point, uh, stems from Iran providing a lot of the training, uh, the assistance, the weaponry, the know-how, the cash, all of these things we know that Iran is behind them. Um, one other thing to note in terms of the assessment, we have all been operating under the assumption that Hamas was trying in, in furtherance of this strategy of perhaps trying to defer conflict in uh, in Gaza, that they had been exporting the conflict to the West Bank. I think the evidence shows that there certainly have, has been an uptick in attacks in the West Bank, but the idea that somehow this was going to supplant whatever was happening in Gaza, I think that was obviously incorrect. And again, I think an assessment will be needed. The last thing I'll just note here is that there is some very positive news that I think has come out of this emergency in Israel, and that is that the politics appear to be uh, coming down to a dull roar, as we might say. Uh, the uh, left-wing uh, political parties, as well as some of the protest movements, have reached out across the aisle, as it were. Uh, they've indicated that they like, first of all, all the reservists and, and, and those that have been protesting on the streets to join back with the IDF and to do what is necessary to defend the country. There's also an indication that left-wing politicians are willing to sit with the right, uh, possibly 
as a um, as an indicator of a national unity government, which I think certainly would benefit Israel at this time, particularly if there's going to be a wider conflict, whether it's in Gaza or it spreads elsewhere in that ring of fire scenario that Mark uh, aptly mentioned. I'll end there and certainly happy to get into the Q&A with folks. Thanks, John. We'll go right into questions. Uh, Jeff Selden of VOA has a three-parter. I think the first one definitely for Brad. Um, does the U.S. have munition weapon stockpiles in Israel that it can share? Thanks, Jeff. Glad you joined. Thanks, Beth. Yeah, the answer is yes. Uh, the, there's uh, the war reserve stock allies Israel. Uh, this has been there. Uh, we've had the U.S. has had a stockpile in Israel, according to the Congressional Research Service. Uh, since 1984 and in 1989, uh, we changed the terms of the, uh, the stockpile to allow Israel access to that. This is something that I've kind of watched through the years. There have been concerns about what's actually in that stockpile, whether it's well-maintained, uh, whether it's the right uh, uh, weapons and equipment, and, and how frequently we practice um, drawing that equipment out. This is an issue I raised explicitly in a podcast with the deputy commander of U.S. Central Command a few months back. Um, the U.S. had the Pentagon has allowed Israel uh, to access some of that equipment in the past, um, according to a flash brief we put out earlier this year that occurred in the 2006 war and also Operation Protective Edge in Gaza in 2014. So there is a precedent for drawing this equipment. Mo my initial impression, it's hard to know for sure what's currently in it, but my initial impression is that the things that Israel needs most right now are not in there. Um, uh, but again, if the war expands, and particularly if there's a ground warfare element, uh, there would be something, some things in that stockpile that might be useful. Some of you may have seen the news reports a while back how the U.S. drew out hundreds of thousands of 155 millimeter howitzer rounds from that stockpile in Israel to support Ukraine. And uh, some of us, including myself, were saying, hey, OK, that's fine, but we need to replenish that as quickly as possible. So that's an interesting question for the any Pentagon reporters on the on the line to take perhaps take note of. And next time you're talking at the Pentagon to ask them about efforts to replenish those stockpiles based on, um, you know, some would say, well, you're not going to really need one five five millimeter howitzers. Really? OK, well, if it becomes a ground war in Gaza or uh, uh, you have a, a northern component of this with Hezbollah, we would find ourselves wanting things like that. So that I'll, I'll stop there on that question. Okay, the second question from Jeff, any indications of Russian involvement? I'll open that up to everyone. Yeah, I don't think we've seen clear evidence of Russian involvement in, in this specific attack. I was actually just trying to find online whether Putin had reacted to this uh, with any kind of public statement from, from the Russian government. I did see... Uh, a lengthy uh, condemnation of the attack and of Iran by Zelensky, um, but clearly, the, you know, there's a significant Russia factor in all of this. I think you know many many of us have been following this. Um, clear cooperation between between Iran and Russia. I mean, Khamenei has has I think sort of hit the in a sense the trifecta from his perspective because while he's been brutally murdering uh, Iranian women and children in Iran, um, he's been helping Putin brutally murder. Ukrainian women and children in Ukraine, and now uh, you know today we see Khamenei uh, with support for Islamic Jihad and Hamas uh, brutally work murdering Israeli women and children in Israel. So you know from Khamenei's perspective, um, that might that it might sound horrific to us, but from his perspective, he he's really achieving his aims um, in inside Iran uh, in Ukraine with his 
close partnership with Russia and certainly his his longstanding aims, as I suggested earlier, uh, to uh, to inflict severe damage on 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 Israel and its uh, its citizenry. Okay, and the third question from Jeff: Did the U.S. and its allies need to reevaluate the capabilities of all Iranian-linked groups and proxies? I'm seeing a lot of uh, nods. I'll jump in briefly on that. Like I said, I, I think that Hamas has, has proven itself here to um, have strategic capabilities, capabilities that can do strategic strategic damage to Israel. We, of course, know that Hezbollah, uh, we've been tracking for quite a while, uh, that it's been stockpiling PGMs or precision guided munitions. These are incredibly lethal uh, weapons that can be steered and targeted using GPS and, and other means. Uh, to be able to have direct hits on strategic targets inside Israel. In other words, what we're watching is a buildup across the board with Iranian proxies. And this is, of course, this is, you know, we haven't even begun to, to look at some of the Shiite militias that are operating inside Syria and Iraq that also may have some of these capabilities. In other words, what we're watching is these years of sanctions relief for the Iranians uh, or the unwillingness, let's say, to impose these sanctions has allowed the regime to be able to send money to its proxies and to be able to train them in ways that I think others had not imagined, perhaps up until this point. But we are certainly at a dangerous stage right now with a lot of these uh, militant organizations gaining uh, skills that we have not seen in the past. And just to add, just to add, excuse me, to what John has correctly said, uh, something I'm seeing, I've noticed in the last few years as well, is um, long-range weapon systems, especially that uh, have been primarily in the hands of Hamas in Gaza, are starting to trickle down to smaller groups, all right? And uh, these groups like Islamic Jihad have access to uh, different types of drones. They can manufacture these drones. So this know-how is coming from somewhere, right? And uh, which is likely either from Hamas, Iran, or, or, or Hezbollah. Uh, we've also seen weapon systems uh, in the hands of the Houthis. And uh, so it's, uh, it's uh, an evaluation is, is desperately needed here because the, the, uh, the proliferation of, of these types of weapons is increasing. And we're seeing it in the Gaza Strip and in actually in, in the West Bank, but on a much smaller scale. Uh, so, yeah. yeah, and I'll jump in on that, just linking it to the Russia question that I, I know a couple of you have asked. Um, obviously, in October, there's going to be the expiration of the UN missile embargo. There was the expiration already of the, the arms embargo. So I think you're going to start to see, as Joe suggested, the, the proliferation of even much more sophisticated weaponry, um, conventional missiles between uh, Russia and Iran, Iran and Russia, Iran to its proxies. I mean, this is now an open field. Uh, it's no longer, or in October, it'll no longer be a violation of of UN sanctions. Um, and I think the UN embargo had been limiting Russia's proliferation of these weapons, at least for a while. Uh, I think the, the you know, the Russia-Ukraine war now is all bets are off, but by October, they'll be able to do this um, without without UN sanction. I know the Biden administration is, is desperately trying to reconstruct some kind of sanctions regime with our European partners. But at the end of the day, that that is not going to be as effective as a, a UN embargo that's expiring uh, per the terms of the Iran deal of 2015. Okay, a related question, um, but still different from Gabriel Gavin of Politico. 
We've heard lots about Iran's role in this, but Russia has also sought to build relations with Hamas and Tehran. What will Moscow be making of this and is chaos in the Middle East in its interests? Well, I'll send that to Shanzer. Shanzer, you want to jump in? I mean, I'm, I'm happy to say real quickly while, while, while John's uh, going off mute, it's absolutely in Russia's interest to create chaos in the Middle East, right? Chaos in the Middle East uh, undermines U.S. national interests, forces the United States and CENTCOM to have to uh, refocus on the Middle East, means that uh, the United States is going to have to send men and, and ships and weaponry into the Middle East, uh, as John, uh, as Brad alluded to. And so it's a it's a big distraction from the U.S. effort to support Ukraine. Uh, certainly the Chinese are, are going to be enjoying this. Um, it's a big distraction for the U.S. effort to support Taiwan. Uh, I would say, though, Russia and Taiwan are, and Russia and China are on opposite sides of this. The Russians want chaos, instability, and high oil prices. The Chinese want stability in the Middle East um, and low oil prices. So I think you'll be seeing the, potentially the Chinese and the Russians on the opposite side of this conflict. Um, but I think Iran and Hamas will be getting full-throated support from their uh, their close Russian military, political, and economic ally. I, uh, John, unless you want to jump in, you know, John, you want to go go next. Go ahead. Go okay. ahead. I was just gonna, just uh, building on what Mark just said. The grand strategic context here. It's not a direct answer to your question, Gabriel, but hopefully it's helpful. Just underscoring um, the growing uh, relationships between Russia, Iran, and China. I mean, Iran is basically being having an opportunity via Russia and Ukraine to test a lot of its weapons, uh, particularly it's the Shahid-136 Shahid and 131 drones, um, and has, has reportedly had uh, Iranian personnel in Crimea, uh, kind of learning firsthand lessons on the battlefield that undoubtedly will inform uh, Iranian uh, technology development, weapons development, tactics, techniques, and procedures uh, that of course Iran has or will pass on to its proxies, and so um, there. Um, you know, we often simplistically say it's all connected, but increasingly it is. And um, and of course now we see Iran uh, looking to procure major weapon systems, aircraft from Russia, which would make a particular uh, Israeli intervention against Iran more difficult. And so, um, and then I would just lastly highlight: we many of you may have seen the reports about uh, Russian, Iranian, and Assad regime collusion, trying to uh, target US forces in Syria, trying to push them out of Syria. I believe the US retains a strong interest in keeping those troops there. And obviously Israel also wants to retain, it, retain its ability to conduct operations in Syria to prevent Iran from building its, uh, its ring of fire even more and opening up another front with which to, to threaten Israelis. To, uh, Go ahead, John. Sorry, yeah, um, I think that's a good place to build on. Um, look, I think that right now we, we see very limited uh, fingerprints in terms of uh, Russian involvement in what's going on here. But if we see the expansion of this war to a northern front or a northeastern front, Russia will have a very clear role to play. Uh, Russia has, of course, been uh, collaborating, working closely with Hezbollah and the Iranian regime inside Syria. Um, and, you know, the Israelis to this day still refer uh, to the Russians in some way or another as a neighbor uh, because of the military presence that they have in the north. If things uh, expand 
uh, as a result of, of today's conflict, and Israel finds itself in um, uh, locked in a conflict with Hezbollah to the north, there will be a, a role for Russia to play. Whether it is a positive one or a negative one could depend significantly on the kind of pressure that the U.S. and Israel and others place on the Russians. I don't know at this point whether they're going to be willing to listen to reason, um, but uh, there has been up until now a professional relationship between the Israelis and the Russians as it relates to Israel's activities yeah, usually under the the, uh, the the cover of darkness or under the cloud of war, where Israel has been targeting uh, various weapons shipments en route to Hezbollah in Lebanon. The Russians have worked with the Israelis. Um, it's not an easy relationship. It's not a friendly relationship, but it has been a professional one. Whether that can be sustained in the event of, a, uh, of an expansion of today's conflict to the Northern Front, if and when that happens, that is really the X factor here that I look at with regard to Russia. Okay, we'll move on to AP's Amr Madani. Uh, do you think internal division over the judicial reform had distracted or contributed to Israel apparently being caught flat-footed? And then what is the long-term political impact for Biden on this? There's another one. We'll, we'll stick with that one. Maybe you chancellor can handle that. Look, uh, I, I think you've got your finger on something important here. Without question, the judicial reform debate and uh, the, the the chaos that it, we've seen on the streets of Israel week after week has had some role to play. Um, I, in, in terms of, I think, the lack of readiness. This is something that Mark and myself, we've warned about um, that uh, Israel needed to keep its eye on the ball, namely the Iranian axis, the threat that it posed to Israel. And the rest of this was really not worth the attention that it was getting, given that Iran had not stopped supplying its proxies with lethal weaponry and the training and the cash and everything that we saw going into today's attack. So I think that uh, the judicial reform crisis in Israel was, um, I've been calling it elective surgery. Uh, that there are much more serious things that Israel must deal with for its own collective national security health. Um, and instead, they chose to focus on something that uh, really could have waited another six months or a year or two years for that matter. Israel's gone 75 years without a constitution. It could go another little while longer as long as it was facing this Iran threat. That seems to me to be the primary threat that it needed to deal with. So I think it's a it's a huge uh, issue. I'm glad right now it appears. I don't want to say it's in the rear view because I don't think um, that it's completely over and done with. But we are seeing cooler heads prevail. We're seeing a unity of purpose among Israel's left and right, a willingness to come together, the potential for a national unity government. So I think uh, that even while it may have been a mistake to focus, as many did, on the judicial issue, there's an opportunity to correct things inside Israel and to set things straight and to begin to focus specifically on the threats from Iran and its proxies. On the question of, of Biden, look, uh, there will come a moment, and I think uh, others on this call have already alluded to it, that when Israel begins to respond in earnest and there will be um, at some point casualties in Gaza, there will be mistakes that often happen on the battlefield. You know, uh, no military is perfect. Um, that's when I think the president will come under fire from his left flank. I think, by the way, he did a good job in the 2021 conflict of holding them at bay for most of the 11 days that Israel was at war. 
Um, I suspect that he will do the same. But the longer this has the potential to drag out, the more pressure I believe the president will come under from his left flank and perhaps from others in the international community um, that will blame Israel uh, for its uh, response in defending itself. Yeah, let me, I want to jump in on this because um, I'm a little less optimistic um, and, and maybe more critical. I think, first of all, um, you know, John and I have been warning about this. Well, but more importantly than John and I warning about this, the head, the chief of staff of the IDF, the head of Mossad, the head, the head of uh, Shin Bet, the Israeli FBI, have been warning Bibi for months that the um, debate over judicial reform and the coalition government's um, refusal to compromise uh, with much of Israeli society on this would severely undermine Israeli uh, military and intelligence readiness. And there was a huge distraction uh, from the external threats that were mounting on Israel's borders, um, which again, as we've we've discussed, we're not we're not a secret. Uh, you know, Khamenei had made it very clear that he was looking for an opportunity that Israeli society was severely divided, and this was an opportunity to to hit the Israelis hard when they're at their most divided and weakest point. So he was getting these warnings. Netanyahu was um, ignoring these warnings. Um, so I don't think it's a big surprise that we woke up this morning and and discovered exactly what not only we've been warning, but what the heads of uh, the military and intelligence heads of Israel have been warning. I think this is Bibi's uh, Yom Kippur moment or Golda, you know, Bibi is Golda today. I mean, if you would remember 50 years ago, a um, couple of weeks, you know, just recently celebrating the, the, the or commemorating the 50th anniversary of the Yom Kippur War, a very similar situation happened. Um, massive uh, military and intelligence, but, but mainly a political failure on the part of former Israeli Prime Minister Golda Meir, um, to uh, to listen to her military uh, and some of her intelligence chiefs who were warning about a full-scale invasion by Egypt and Syria. Um, and of course, that that war was was initially devastating for Israel. The IDF turned it around, won a, won a significant military victory, but it had significant devastating political consequences for Golda Meir, um, who, whose political career was damaged and she she resigned shortly after that. I, I, I don't know if Bibi survives this. I'm not sure he survives this kind of blow. I mean, the, the Israeli public is going to unify. You know, the 250 Israelis killed, 1,100 injured, 20 hostages being taken in Gaza, including Israeli kids. Um, there's no way the Israelis, you know, is, Israel's going to uh, put up with this. They will unify, as John said. You know, the reservists are all going back. I imagine there'll be a full-scale um, mobilization over hundreds, hundreds of thousands of Israelis, and maybe the IDF is going back into Gaza. So from a military point of view, like the Yom Kippur War, I can see the IDF really turning this around and maybe turning this into a, a military uh, uh, victory um, and perhaps, you know, maybe getting rid of Hamas once and for all in Gaza. From a political perspective, um, I think this is going to be pretty devastating for the prime minister. And I think his uh, attempts to, to form a national union government um, are admirable and net necessary. But he continues to include members in that government who are not only extreme, um, but are completely unqualified from a military and security perspective. Um, and we saw, saw the devastating results of having people in your coalition who do not have military experience, intelligence experience, um, and in fact are, are um, ideologues who um, prevented the prime minister from fully appreciating um, and, and, uh, and fighting against the threats that were mounting on his border. You know, Mark, I'm going to just add to that because I think you're 100% correct. And of course, you and I 
I think have been in agreement on this from from the start. I think the um, the deployment of forces to the West Bank um, has been the result of political decisions, uh, as well as some of the military assessments. But I think that that has potentially undermined Israeli readiness for this moment. Um, I do think that whatever happens to Bibi, it will take a little bit of time. We're going to have to let the dust settle here. There are a couple of things that I would look for. One is if there is a potential need to go with boots on the ground into the Gaza Strip. This is, of course, something that Netanyahu would be loath to do. He is not um, typically his his M.O. is not to send forces. He doesn't like to put Israel in the potential for a quagmire. But the Israeli public may be asking for this. Remember, there are more than 50 hostages, according to current estimates right now, in the hands of Hamas sitting inside the Gaza Strip. Um, and, and we've seen in the past that when these things have happened with much smaller numbers and not civilians, military personnel, uh, that we have seen incursions along the lines uh, you know, of, of conflicts past. So um, this is something to watch. And, and I think after something like this is settled, after uh, Israelis get a sense about the fate of the hostages, then I think there's likely going to be some kind of a commission. Um, the commission will be, I think, rather brutal with the way in which all of this was handled. I think there's no question about it. Um, and and it, you know, at the, at the end of the day, the responsibility will, will lie with those at the top, namely Bibi. Um, we've seen these sorts of commissions, I think, I'm thinking back to the last war in Lebanon. Uh, there was a Vinograd commission uh, that ultimately found a lot of problems within the government and also uh, within the IDF. These are the sorts of things that I would expect, but it will be quite some time. Um, what will be interesting is whether political, direct political pressure from the Israeli public forces Bibi out. Um, at a time before such a commission can be held and before those results um, are released. Yeah, I mean, I, from Khamenei's perspective, this is all playing really nicely. I mean, if, if last year was the worst year the Islamic Republic has had in its history, this year is probably one of the best. Um, and from, from Khamenei's point of view, his ring of fire strategy, right, he fired up the West Bank um, with, with Hamas and Islamic Jihad. The IDF had to respond to that because there were obviously terrorist attacks occurring uh, from the West Bank into, into Tel Aviv and into other Israeli cities, obviously lots of attacks inside the West Bank. So the, the IDF had no choice but to move forces into the West Bank. So he so he very smartly, from Khamenei's perspective, right, sets the West Bank on fire. West Bank becomes a significant focus of the IDF. Then he perceives his opportunity given the internal divisions that we've discussed in Israel, um, the, the divisions he, see, he perceives weakness, uh, he's hearing the reports from the chief of staff and the heads of intelligence uh, that it, this is all undermining Israeli military readiness. So he sees distraction, diversion, and undermining of Israeli military readiness. And this is his opportunity to to set um, to set the Gaza border on fire. Um, so again, right, rings of fire. That's what he's been talking about for 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 years. In fact, that was a strategy that Qasem Soleimani before he was. Uh, taken out in a joint U.S.-Israel operation, had been advancing across the Middle East, this rings of fire strategy, set the borders on fire and distract Israel militarily and politically, and then strike a harsh blow as they have today. Today was a, a devastating blow for Israeli uh, military and Israeli society. Mark, there's another question from Amr. Does this kill the administration's hopes of resurrecting the Iran nuclear deal? Well, the administration's under fire right now uh, today from from the Hill, uh, from from uh, members of Congress linking um, uh, 
the sort of $6 billion that was paid to the regime in Iran recently um, is actually more than six. It was, you know, 16 billion in, in cash and another 35, 40 billion in oil sales. So, you know, 50, 60 billion dollars. Try, uh, politically trying to link that to um, what happened today in Israel. And I think there are some reasonable links to be made, right? First of all, you're you're enriching the regime. It's got more money to um, fund its proxies. I mean, it's been given Hamas and Islamic Jihad and, and Hezbollah, not to mention Shiite militias in Iraq and the Houthis, you know, probably around a billion dollars a year. So they're going to have more money, money's fungible. Um, money coming into their coffers will, will free up money to support their proxies. So I think the, the administration is taking a political hit on that um, and is under fire. And you saw a statement from the Undersecretary of the Treasury, Brian, uh, uh, Undersecretary Nelson, today trying to de-link the $6 billion from what, you know, what happened today in Israel. So you can see the sensitivities there. I don't think it's going to undermine what, what has been the administration's uh, priority, which is to have a deal. I mean, that, that they're just going to make the argument that a deal is needed even more. Than it was needed before, because if, if Iran is dangerous today, imagine how dangerous Iran will be with a nuclear weapon. So I don't see what's happening today, um, setting back the administration's efforts. I, I think politically, it's going to be tougher in Washington uh, to push through a deal, which is all the more reason why the administration will do everything they can to circumvent Congress and not give Congress the opportunity to review any kind of arrangement or deal that they reach with Iran. Let me also point out one just glaring issue that I think came up today. Um, the administration, I think, obviously understands the optics of this. Uh, and we've seen officials come out and defend uh, the fact that none of the, the money that has been uh, transferred to accounts in Qatar um, has been transferred onward. And that there's no indication that those funds have helped the regime in any way. I'm not, you know, without getting into the specifics of whether that's true or not, I just want to note here that um, that Qatar, which is now in possession of these funds, are a major patron of Hamas. Hamas has a headquarters that is based in Doha. There's roughly a dozen figures, including Khalid Meshal, that have been based there, operating out of, out of there. Uh, Salah Arori, one of the military uh, figures that has boasted of the dozens of people that Hamas currently holds inside the Gaza Strip. He visits uh, Doha regularly. It's one of his regular stops. So this idea that the administration is relying on the Qataris as a, um, you know, as a valued interlocutor or a safeguard for cash that could be transferred onto Hamas, the optics are rather poor, and I can understand why the administration may be on its back feet. Yeah, I mean, John John remembers, because he and I did a lot of work on this, the last time a uh, patron of Hamas uh, was asked to hold Iranian oil funds um, on the hope that they would be um, exercise great customer due diligence in how those funds would be used was Turkey. Uh, and was the $20 billion Turkey-Iran sanctions-busting scheme that the Iranians and the Turks ran uh, with the complicity of Erdogan's government, his top ministers, I think John, even his son-in-law, if I recall, um, with huge bribes being paid. So the notion that somehow we're going to rely on Turkey and Qatar to ensure that this money is only used for humanitarian purposes, I, I think there's a you know a track record of, of massive Iranian sanctions-busting schemes that that certainly belies that. All right, I'll ask a question as we wait for any final questions from uh, media on the line. My understanding is that Israel is still actively defending against Hamas incursions at multiple sites and 
Uh, several of you mentioned that the war could expand, specifically an IDF ground incursion into Gaza. And there's no history of something like this happening in Israel of this extent. So that said, how long and expansive of an engagement do you all foresee? Uh, look, the answer is nobody knows. Um, uh, we're, we're obviously not seeing what the Israelis are seeing, and, and we have not yet felt, I think, the, the full extent of the outrage from the Israeli public over this uh, and the pressure that may come to bear on the IDF, uh, on the intelligence apparatus, and, and, and certainly on the political echelon inside Israel. Um, I, I think there almost certainly has to be something done to try to uh, recoup those hostages. You know, we're talking about dozens of Israeli civilians, including women and children, uh, according to reliable accounts that have been held hostage here. Um, the idea that the Israelis would sit on their hands and not do something about this, I, I think, just does not fly. Um, now, what that means, I don't know. What I can say, though, is that in the past, right, the last actual, the, the, the last real major war, the Israelis destroyed a huge amount of infrastructure that Hamas had prepared um, in anticipation of a ground war. I am certain that they have spent the last uh, two years or so rebuilding that infrastructure, the tunnels and the other means to try to capture Israeli soldiers when they're in on the ground. I'm sure the Israelis are aware of this and probably quite nervous about it. Um, that said, you know, this is a, uh, a regional powerful military that um, you know should be able to handle these sorts of challenges. I, I can see real um, hand wringing, let's say, on the part of IDF brass and the part of the political uh, uh, leaders that are going to have to decide on this. But yeah, again, you have to remember here: the moment that Israel puts boots on the ground in the Gaza Strip is the moment that we could see the West Bank flare up. We could see uh, the northern border flare up. We can. I mean, don't forget his uh, Hezbollah. Uh, Iran, Hamas, they've thought about these things well in advance. And I think Israel is probably wise to sit tight and try to collect as much intelligence as possible to try to figure out what they missed in the lead up to this before they start making decisions about next steps and, um, you know, and, and uh, military operations. I'm sure my colleagues have other thoughts as well. Uh, John, you, yeah, you said it perfectly. My concern uh, right now is that, uh, especially uh, during a Israeli, possible Israeli ground operation, uh, there will be other fronts that will be ignited. Uh, a few days ago, for example, Islamic Jihad uh, Secretary General, or Islamic Jihad Secretary General Ziad Nahala stated that new battalions or fighters or whatever you'd like to call them have been formed in Lebanon, southern Lebanon, in Syria, and in the West Bank. And I think this message was is in, very interesting. It happened just days before uh, what happened today. So um, my concern, again, is that southern Lebanon and other arenas will, will join the fight, okay? And uh, we haven't seen that yet, but uh, I know the IDF is, is, is aware of this. So uh, that's that's one thing I just wanted to add about that. Yeah, a little more on the sort of internal politics and how this all relates. I I just saw Naftali Bennett, the former Prime Minister of Israel, um, came out in a public statement saying that it's it's long past the time to to quote destroy Hamas, um, which certainly suggests uh, more than just air operations, but support for a ground operation. He he just joined. He's 
his uh, military unit and reserve duty. Um, so obviously the prime minister is going to be under under tremendous pressure politically um, from the public, from opposition politicians to uh, to 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 go after Hamas uh, in uh, a much more robust way than they have in in prior operations. But um, it's it's a huge risk. But I think there's been a, there's been a lot of clamoring in the Israeli security establishment for a number of years that the, the approach with Hamas and the approach with Hezbollah has, has failed, right? This, this approach of just limited operations, airstrikes, uh, trying to degrade their capability, trying to take out you know some of their missiles uh, has just led not only to endless uh, operations and endless wars, but has also led to um, the hardening of Hamas and Hezbollah infrastructure in, uh, in both Gaza and Lebanon. If I can just build on that, if, uh, you know, based on what John and Mark both just said, John talked about how probably Hamas has been quite busy rebuilding a lot of their infrastructure, including their underground infrastructure. And if Israel's objectives vis-a-vis -vis Hamas are, 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 are more robust, uh, then in my opinion, there is no way that Israel will be able to accomplish that simply with uh, airstrikes. Uh, uh, and that would require a ground incursion. And a ground incursion obviously is going to be more difficult and it's going to take longer and that has direct implications for what kind of support that Israel may need from the United States. A new question in from Gabrielle of Politico. We've seen extremely clearly communicated US red lines crossed in Nagorno-Karabakh in recent weeks, the threat of the same in Kosovo, and now this brazen move by Iran and its allies. Why are hostile regimes choosing now to act and is Washington not doing enough to ensure there are consequences? I choose Brad Bowman for that one because he, he wrote a, a brilliant uh, monograph on U.S. for deterrence and what happens when U.S. deterrence uh, is questioned and weakened. So, Brad? Oh, <laughs> thanks, Mark. Uh, you, yeah, no, it, uh, you know, it's sometimes um, there's coordination. Uh, and sometimes one actor sees another actor acting, and then they say, now's the time to roll the dice. I've been talking about that in the China-Russia context for about three years now, warning that we, the United States military does not have sufficient capacity to deal with major operations in, say, the Baltics and the Taiwan Strait at the same time, and that many of our war plans are based on antiquated, dangerous assumptions that need to be updated. Um, so, you know, I, I wouldn't want in any way suggest that things are necessarily directly coordinated or connected, but uh, people watch. And I'd say when the world sees the U.S. conducting a reckless uh, withdrawal from Afghanistan against the advice of military commanders, it's safe to assume that Vladimir Putin took note of that. And that may have informed his thinking about what he did in February of 2022 in Ukraine. Um, and of course, Hezbollah is watching what Hamas is doing and, and actors in the West Bank are watching. Everyone's watching. And um, deterrence is based on, you know, the, I won't get wonky, don't worry, but deterrence is based on two things. It's based on perceptions, not reality, perceptions of military capability and perceptions of the willingness of political leaders to use that military capability to impose costs, to either prevent you from accomplishing your objectives with military force or impose costs that are unacceptable. So if the United States is perceived as being weak, if Israel is perceived as being weak or unwilling to use the muscle that they have, then we should expect more aggression. And so that's why 
if the United States is viewed as a bodybuilder in the Middle East that has great big muscles, looks good in the gym and looks good in the mirror, enjoys seeing itself in the mirror, but when walks outside of the gym is unwilling to throw a punch, then those big, huge American muscles don't matter very much because the thugs, the thugs believe they can get away with anything. Israel has a reputation, reputation for knowing that having a pretty sizable muscles for a, a smallish power and that they know how to throw a punch because they live in a tough neighborhood and they have to. And so I think that realization uh, as, uh, as a country that's largely surrounded by adversaries that don't recognize their right to exist will push Israel toward a more, not less, approach to this uh, uh, abominable, unprovoked aggression that they're facing from terrorists right now. And so I know all that sounds very touchy-feely, but I think the longer I do this, the more I think it's those perceptions that matter. And um, the United States is, is the most powerful military in the history of the world, but sometimes we don't act like it. And because we don't act like it, uh, we confront more aggression than we need to need to confront. Israel understands that, and I think, uh, and I'll defer to Mark and John and others on Israeli domestic politics, but if you buy what I'm saying, I think this has policy implications for the United States in this moment, uh, not just in the Middle East, but more broadly, but it also has policy implications for how Israel will be forced to respond because the terrorists involved and the terrorists watching and the terrorist patrons in Tehran are all watching and they're going to make decisions about future aggression based on what happens in the next few days and weeks. Just a quick update here. Uh, just as we've been speaking, numbers coming in. Um, right now, the estimates are uh, 1,500 injured, 290 of them uh, in serious condition, uh, at least 250 people. That's, a, that's an update from the 150 or 200 from before are, have been confirmed murdered. Uh, uh, by uh, by Hamas militants uh, today, and there's talk right now of a uh, state of emergency throughout the country, which could indicate um, additional fronts. So something to just keep an eye on. Okay, I think we'll uh, we'll wrap it up. Any final thoughts, Mark or John? I think just a, a quick one to Brad's point. Uh, I mentioned Naftali Bennett, former prime minister of Israel, um, someone who's you know obviously applauding his return back to the prime minister's office, um, coming out with a statement about destroying Hamas. Bennett was also famous for his octopus strategy, which is his view that it, Israel has spent too much time wasting uh, its resources, uh, lives, and, and uh and its military on fighting the tentacles of the octopus, you know, the Hamas Islamic Jihad tentacles, um, but that it had to hit the head of the octopus in in Tehran. Um, so I'm I'm keeping my eye out not only on what happens on Israel's borders, um, but will there be any kind of Israeli operations, uh, covert or otherwise, aimed at the head of the octopus? And and it'll be interesting to see how that plays out over the coming days or weeks. Uh, it could mean you know, full-scale confrontation directly with Iran uh, if the prime minister and the, his military cabinet decide that, you know, again, fighting Hamas and fighting Hamas only is just going to lead to more escalation and more wars in the way that, uh, that Brad suggested. 